Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Brian Platzer is the author of the parenting book, Taking the Stress Out of Homework. Thank the Lord. That's not part of the title. As well as the novels, bed is Burning and The Body Politic. He was the educational columnist for The Atlantic during the pandemic. And his writing has appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and many other publications. Brian is a middle school teacher, the co-founder of Teachers Who Tutor NYC, and a father of two young sons. Brian, we are so happy to have you here. I couldn't be more thrilled to be here with you. Looking forward to the conversation. We are too. Let's jump in with one of the very biggest sources of conflict between tweens and teens and their parents, right? So homework. It feels as People who have had these kids living in our home, growing up with homework, it feels like a never-ending battle sometimes. Getting the kids to do their homework, getting them to study for tests, getting them not to procrastinate and then cram, getting them to organize themselves. I could go into descriptions of asking my kids to show me something out of their backpack and seeing what that looks like. Oh and God, a moment the worst. I wonder if we're related. Uh, <laughs> But that doesn't even begin to address the secondary layer of technology on top of all of it and the sort of multifocal piece of this, which is that kids have paper in front of them that they need to master. And then they have devices that despite us begging them to get off of their devices, often have a lot of the work or the schedules or the instructions on top, right? So this is layer on top of layer on top of layer of potential conflict. Absolutely. And then you have puberty, (laughs) (laughs) hormones and, you know, all of that and this perfect storm. So let's take that as our starting point. And we're going to just ask you questions that, maybe are a little self-serving because we have them for ourselves, but we also get them from all the people who listen who have many of the same questions. Let's start with, is homework really necessary? Like, what's the deal, Brian? Yeah, so the answer is homework is necessary. The problem is that 
all the constituencies of people who love and hate homework confuse this question to the extent that you have some parents who see the sign of a good school as one that is constantly giving homework and making sure kids are busy. You have other parents who see homework as this necessary evil, where, as you say, we're getting our kids to do this and getting our kids to do that. And other parents who think homework is just a waste of time and they're not learning anything at home anyway. And isn't this the teacher's job? So one of the issues of like whether homework is necessary is that teachers want to be able to say, we need homework for these reasons, but because the audience for these reasons differs so dramatically, the explanation needs to differ so dramatically. I think the easiest way to think about it from my perspective is busy work is not necessary, where if skills are mastered in school, there's really no reason for the kid to then come home and do a hundred problems that they've already understood how to do in school. That being said, I, for example, you know, I'm, one of the classes I teach is a, is a literature class this year, and I need the students to read the 25 pages at home before they come in to discuss them or else class will be a waste of time. Class will just be spent with, you know, as an exercise in reading comprehension, as opposed to the analysis and delving into the language that we do sort of for the critical thought building and the, you know, writing skills that we try to develop within class. So like at the very basic level, homework is necessary for classes that need preparation. So that distinction is so interesting between the reading and kind of the the doing. Talk to us for a second about math in particular, maybe also a little bit of science where it's that reinforcing cycle of problems to prove to yourself that you have knowledge or problems to identify holes. Can you help parents understand the value of not busy work, but homework there? Because that can be one of the most anxiety provoking issues absolutely when it comes to no that, that that question is really well framed and I, I think my best answer to that is to think about it in terms of passive versus active learning where often you have students sitting in a classroom watching the teacher sort of perform the answers to the problems and then you know occasionally teachers will say and what would you do next and the student will look at the board the whiteboard or the smart board or the blackboard whatever board it is and say like oh uh divide by two you know and they're either right or wrong and then you you move on the most useful aspect often of the science and math and even foreign language homework is being alone in a room, being asked a question and verifying that the student is able to accomplish those tasks on his or her own. Because whereas just like, you know, if we talk about studying later on, one of the biggest pieces of advice I have with studying for a math test is don't just go over the problems that you've already done because your eyes will read over and sort of, you'll think, yeah, I would have done that here. And yeah, I would have done that next. And yes, I would have finally checked that over, start the problem over, cover the answers, do a new problem and make sure you can get from the beginning of the end alone. That's the same goal with homework, where as opposed to seeing the teacher perform the task and maybe being have your hand held a little bit by the teacher while you're performing it, being alone in your room is really, or in a desk silently, you know, for an assessment. But that's really the place where you can tell as a student what you understand and what you don't hopefully when you don't understand something, again, I'm speaking in the second person as though we're talking to students, what you do next is fight your way through it, you know, and look into the textbook or your notes and see previous problems and, and make sure that you then are able to cross that final line alone. So much of the frustration often comes when you're being given that list of questions, you see 10 questions, you get through the first half of one question and you panic because you can't do it anymore. And what should be a source of confidence building or, you know, independence or autonomy often becomes a source of anxiety because students see the teacher be able to do it in class. They feel somewhat confident, or at least they get a general hang of it. And then where they're confronted with the homework at home, panic sets in. And that's when so often they go to their parents and they say, ah, you know, with various degrees of I can't do articulation. it. Right. I can't, I can't do right. it. I'm I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go talk to the teacher tomorrow. Maybe, maybe they say that. All right. So let me give you a scenario, Brian. Please. It's 10 o'clock at night. Yes. Your kid has a math test tomorrow. No, actually, I'm going to make it a history test. Your kid has a history test tomorrow. And Way to throw a wrench in there, Vanessa. <laughs> 
<laughs> mixing up disciplines. You know, your kid has a history test tomorrow. I want to get at the point Brian was making about passive learning and passive studying versus active. Okay. This may or may not have happened in my own home with more than one of my children. And you say, oh, okay. How are you feeling about the test? Great. Did you study? Yeah. How did you study? Oh, I read through my notes. And you're like, mm, yeah, hold no, up. De- definitely danger, <laughs> dangerous sign danger. one. Read, th- read through oh, my notes. Okay. Yeah. Or maybe it's something like, I watched someone else do a Quizlet. That's an just a a brief digression on Quizlet. Quizlet, if you are familiar with it, you are familiar with it. If you're not familiar with it, it's this like theoretically delightful tool where you know instead of flashcards where there are paper all over the place, it's like flashcards automated where there's, you know, the left side of a column can be questions and the right is an answer. And they can even like have neat designs and like staplers talking to you and make you feel like you have an understanding of what's going on. The problem with Quizlet is manifold, but the principal problem is the autofill element of Quizlet. So instead of even writing their own Quizlets or their own study guides, almost everything has been taught and Quizleted somewhere by someone. So, yeah, so students go and they open up Quizlet and they're studying, you know, as you say, like ancient Greek history or completing the square or whatever it is. And they only need to put in the word that needs to be defined. And they have like 50 different examples of definitions that other students have created for. So it is passivity on top of passivity. It's and like let's the- not rag on Quizlet for this whole podcast, but I do have to say two, two things about Quizlet. Oh, we're going to spend more time on Quizlet. <laughs> Quizlet. Yes. I didn't want to. Yes, I know. We yeah. better forget about getting sponsored by Quizlet, Cara. Go ahead. Okay. Go dump on okay, Quizlet. Two, two quick rag on Quizlet notes. One is the ever-present comment when a parent or an adult figure sees the wrong definition on the Quizlet right. card, for instance, and the answer from the kid is, Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't write that Quizlet. And then the second is the reverse side of that coin, which is when when my kids were in grade school, the teachers subscribed the parents to the Quizlet list. I don't know why. It was like some form of medieval torture. So we would get notified when the Quizlets were completed by other children. Oh, So we felt especially bad about how our child was a learning all the wrong information and b not even motivating to make the quizlet. Okay. So, okay. So Brian, that's a perfect segue because let's take the example of the kid comes downstairs swaggering because it's time for their (laughs) phone time because they've studied for history badly. Yes. What is the role of parents in homework? You talk about it in the book and it's super helpful, but I want you to lay out what is our role and what isn't our role? Because we're not going to like leave our kids to totally sink, but also they need to figure this stuff out. So talk to us about that. Absolutely. So the easiest way to answer that question is your role is in helping prepare students to study as opposed to doing the studying or screaming at them when the studying is not done well. So the way that I look at that, and all kids are, are different and all families I don't know different. what you're talking about. I don't know why I've <laughs> never, never screamed at my kids for doing a terrible studying job. We've yes. all screamed at our kids. I mean, the, the, there is nothing more, I mean, there are many things more frustrating than I'm about to say, but one frustrating thing is when you have no power over the situation, but you know your kid is just going to be a disaster and you can't really save them from themselves, but you just like need to say like, this isn't good. This will not work out. And, you know, we, we can talk about a variety of like very specific tips here. I think the easiest thing not to do is never put pencil to your kid's paper or fingers to your kid's keyboard, because that makes the kid feel like he or she isn't doing the work. And it also creates a terrible system by which at the end of a night, you know, a student assumes that a parent will jump in and, and solve problems for him or her. The next easiest way to answer the question is in terms of organization and preparation. And that is frustrating advice to receive when it's 10 o'clock and your kid hasn't studied correctly. So like, I don't, I don't want to delve too deeply into that because it's just going to piss off the parent who feels like the work is due tomorrow. And yes, I know if I started three years ago, it would be better, but now it's three years later and I can't have started three years ago, but what all parents can do. And whether this is starting in second, third grade, all the way through college is 
talking about what a system should be when it comes to organizing that work. So before you get to 10 p.m. the night before, there is some degree of responsibility baked in and some sense of what should have happened. And, you know, I, I can run through these, you know, basic best practices now, if you'd like briefly, you can ask me specifically, but just to like get through the, what I would advise is one, Students should start by having a list of items to complete every night. And attached to that list should be about how long each item will take and what the most intimidating item is versus the least intimidating. And I think all of us get a kick out of checking items off lists. So like our, <laughs> and kids are, are no, no different. So our instinct is probably to do the easy stuff first, you know, and if it's, if it's like, buy the the soccer shorts for soccer practice, like going on Amazon and buying those shorts and, and checking them off a list is going to be the easiest and the, the most fun. The problem is, is if there's that scary chemistry homework to do at the end of the night, then that one, the chemistry homework just gets scarier as you haven't done it and you haven't done it and you haven't done it, but it's looming over that night's assignment. Two, by the time you get to the chemistry homework at the end of the night, you're exhausted and tired and you can't focus as well. So a little bit counterintuitively, I strongly advise not only creating a list, not only estimating about how much time each item on the list will take. So if you've got an hour and a half and an item that should only take half an hour, it's time to move on regardless. But finally, to do it in reverse intimidating order where tackle that hardest project earliest. Right. Because we know that avoidance breeds anxiety, right? If you're anxious about something and you avoid it, you're only going to get more anxious about it. So I'm just going to jump in. For those of you who cannot see through your audio, I'm holding up (laughs) a copy of Brian's book called Taking the Stress Out of Homework. The book is phenomenal for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is every single thing he just said is written down very clearly. Like it's the kind of book where you can flip and see things in bold on a page in a list form. And so you don't have to remember. I love lists. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to remember everything Brian is saying here because it's all written down for you. So one of the great benefits of homework when it's not busy work is being alone in the room and sort of being forced to come to terms with what you do and don't understand. Parents being part of homework is by definition, the opposite of that. So the concept of getting parents out of the room is really important. When and how is it appropriate to be back in the room a little bit? And how do you get your kids on board with that? Or is it never appropriate? No, it definitely is appropriate. And I think you ask a great question. The quick answer for me is to build checkpoints into that list of what you're looking to accomplish. So going back to that idea that, you know, you have math homework and chemistry homework and writing homework and history homework, and you know that your kid will be fine with math homework because, you know, this assignment is easy or he's doing well this semester. Um, But you also know that history studying is going to be a particular challenge. As part of the list that your child writes down, I think it's important that there is some public element to that list. So we're big fans. I say we because Abby is a bit of a a whiteboard fetishist when it comes to like (laughs) insisting every room have a humongous whiteboard with like different color expo markers and should be like the most prominent feature in, in any room. And some kids, especially younger kids, love it because like it makes them feel grown up and it makes them be able to color code. And some kids just by disposition love having that sort of performative list. And that's great for parents because that's a way that you don't need to constantly check in and nag and say, like, what are you doing now? And what's going on next? Because it's there visually. I think that there are a variety of ways, if it's not the giant whiteboard, it can be even a Google doc that is shared, you know, among family members. And if that seems creepy that the kid doesn't want, you know, mom or dad or another caretaker always looking at the Google Doc or always checking in. Then you can have a conversation saying like, how can I be of best service to you? And I, I think opening up that conversation early and then rehaving it frequently is of incredible benefit. The thing that I find fascinating, Brian, is when my high schoolers get in the car and it's like, you know, what do you have for homework tonight? And the answer is 99.9% of the time. uh, I don't know. I got to check. And you're like, 
how do you not know? Like, how did you not like look it up before you left? Like it's, it's fascinating to me. I think that that is not new, but I think exacerbated by the fact that so many of these schools have portals or places that teachers put the homework and they figure, you know, well, I'll get home and I'll see what the teacher wrote on the thing and then I'll go through it. It makes me so anxious. Like I need to preview and plan. Because you would have left the notebook or the book in your locker and that doesn't exist anymore. There's no need. Remember those days where it was eight o'clock at night and school was locked and you realized yes. that the one book you right. needed was in your who, locker. And you see who lives near you and who you can run and pick up work from. That and is not a shared at me. No, it's exactly. And the larger problem, Vanessa, in what you say, it isn't just that moment of uncertainty then. It's for longer term assignments right. where if they are only checking the student portal or whatever it's called at, at each individual school, then back planning can't have occurred. And that's when parents and kids, I find, get in the most antagonistic modes where, like, how could you have left this un- until now? <laughs> you're, you're going to research and r- outline and write and edit an essay for tomorrow, like, and you're hungry and you, ha- you have to bathe and, and like it, it gets overwhelming. And they're like, no, I'm good. I don't need to. Bathe. Right. No, I don't need. I don't need. I have secret supplies of food. I don't need to shower this week. I have an right. entire Costco container of chocolate covered almonds. So we're exactly. good. Okay. I smell I great. Axe body spray and chocolate covered almonds. Brian, you understand our audience. Great. That's so Brian, let's use this as an example. And I want to, I want to use this as a pathway to transition to executive functioning. But before you define for us executive functioning, let's start with a scenario. And the scenario is this, your eighth grader has a research paper due in a month and there's 16 different... already anxious. (laughs) (laughs) There's 16 different aspects to the rubric by which they will be graded on this research paper. The research paper is like 40% 40% of their grade right. are and, you it, and, and they have and the rubric, it, which I find, right. I, I got to say, I think this is a vast improvement in the educational system is the rubric is actually given. It's fully transparent, but that yes, now my, my anxiety has gone from, you know, orange to red. And maybe they even have like one part of the rubric is coming up with the topic proposal. And the next part is the annotated bibliography. <laughs> and the next part is the outline, right? So like yes. they're walking through, but like your kid doesn't love history. You know, they're going to avoid this, like the plague. What is our role? What do we do? And what do we empower them to do. And then we'll move into like real hardcore executive functioning conversation. Perfect. It's the question that you ask. And the answer is the first role that a parent not should play, but can often receive good benefit if they do play (laughs) is sitting down with your kid and the rubric and a calendar and writing deadlines on a calendar for the kid to accomplish. But let's pause for one second. What if the kid is like, I got it. Go away. It's fine, mom. I know what I'm supposed to do. Like, you're so annoying. It's fine. Right, Car? Is that what you were going to say? I was. And I was also going to say, I think this question, while we've put it set in the eighth grade, I really actually think it could apply to the fifth grade. And I think it could apply to the 11th grade. I just... Right. It's very and, the and eternal I think, I think the, the, the parental role, I think, is is more straightforward and less uh, diverse for the fifth grader than it is for the 12th grader. Because for the 11th, 12th graders, there is such a variety of responses and there's such a variety of ways to articulate anger <laughs> or silence or frustration or, you know, and also with 12th graders, you know that next year you are not most likely physically going to be in the same space as the student. And that creates a needing to, or like a, an additional anxiety of like, how am I about to send my child out into the world without these skills? So it's a push pull there. That's, that's more difficult. Starting with the fifth grader, I think you can just sort of make the fifth grader do it if if you want. And yes, the kid might groan, but saying like, let's take out a weekly planner or calendar or a monthly planner or calendar and see how these chunks can be 
divided and then written down. And if, you know, you get that 20 second groan that you just did into the microphone, Vanessa, like the, the way- Sorry, it, everyone. No, no, it's part of, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a brilliant articulation of exactly the emotion. Then I think you can say like, okay, you don't need to officially do this with me now, but in a week, I'm going to ask you if you've done this thing. And if you have done the thing, then you've proven me wrong and you're on your own to do the next thing. And if you haven't, then right now, please commit to that's when you will sit down and groan a little bit less and do the next part together. And parental tip, actually go back to them in a week. Exactly. Right. Exactly. No, and that's that's key because you don't want to have that conversation. Like in a week, it's not like you're you're giddy to sit down with your you know fourteen year old and say like, remember that thing you promised that you were going to do that you definitely didn't do. Like, let's sit down and me call you on something and you be angry with me about it. But if you don't do it, then you lose <laughs> all you know uh, conversational. Uh, authority moving forward. And you can even make a date. Like you can even say on Tuesday at eight o'clock, we're going to regroup and we're going to visit and like we can bring ice and cream. And you can acknowledge can, that, right. Yeah. That even with ice cream and all the toppings, like it might be miserable for both of you, but right. knowing that you're signing up a week from then for 20 minutes of misery is fine if it puts the ball a little bit more in the student's court where you then become less of a, you got to do this, you got to do that. And more of a helpful, you know, guidepost along the way. And that that's an ideal world. And, and, you know, the, the chances of somebody expressing gratitude to his mother <laughs> as a 14 year old in this moment is fantasy. But the idea of saying like, okay, we have a big assignment. If you want to do it on your own, go for it. But in a week, we're going to see whether doing it on your own is a real thing. And then a week later, you check in, you say like, this worked out, but you haven't started the outline, which we agreed would be done now. So you can, again, you can take a day or two to see if you want to be left alone for the outline. But if not, you're creating a more annoying version of me in not doing the work, you know? And I think that that is what you need to set expectations for. And the other important components are time and place, right? So Let's start with place. Sometimes you're going into your kid's space and announcing to them what they're going to do. And that dynamic, sometimes it can work, but I have found in my own home, that's the least productive. So, you know, my own lived experience is that these conversations are better held either in your kid's space with both of you kind of sitting at the same level or sort of no one is lording over anyone else, right? Or actually not having these conversations in that space, having them in the kitchen, having them on a walk, having them somewhere that is separate from where the work is going to be done. The other is timing. So one of the things that I've become so aware of in myself as a parent is that I am struck with a thought. And if I am struck with a thought right now, if I don't act on it right now, that thought will leave my brain and I will forget I ever had it. So I must race over to whatever person or thing and <laughs> right, and and vomit my thought on them so that it's out there in the universe. When I do that with my kids, with respect to anything, whether it's homework, wanting to get a job, anything, and it's on my timeline, not their timeline, it tends to land poorly. And I keep trying to learn this lesson over and over again. And I talk to a lot of parents who are having the same experience. We do have to hold back the thought until our kids are receptive to it. So if they've just walked in from a sports practice, they're hot, they're sweaty, and they're hungry. And that's when we decide to lay it out for them what they need to do over the next one, two, three weeks. That will not land nearly as well as after they have showered, changed, and eaten. I'll even say to my kids, hey, I want to talk to you about your history paper. Can you let me know when would be a good time tonight? And then the ball's in their court. And I'm not giving them a choice about talking about the paper. I'm giving them the choice about when we're going to talk about the paper. And I feel like that's a lesson we've all learned with romantic partners. Totally. Learned with kids. Like, I know, like... My wife just came in through the door, like she had a day, like that is not when I am going to be demanding and needy, you, you know, like it, it took 15 years to figure that out. But like, I, it is, it, it is clear to me, like, what is a strategic decision and what is like my being emotionally vulnerable and, and, you know, <laughs> like not necessarily, uh, 
focused on the, the other person. I feel like we're all way worse at that with our kids. Cause like with our kids, we like did the diapers and the baths and the meals. And like, you we know sort of each other like, so well. Yeah, we, we, we feel like we <laughs> can just owe like, us. They exactly, owe us. exactly. But when I, I think puberty is exactly the transition point here to, to where it, it seems most where like you have to recalibrate a little bit there. And whereas barging into the, their room when they're in kindergarten, because like they literally have been lying there without pants, they need to put on pants in order to go to school. Like you're allowed to barge in. And like Brian, when the they're pants... lying there without pants in the eighth grade, you do not want to barge into that. That's right? what I'm so saying. The rule, the rule is, is not. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. 
Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. So let's talk about puberty and executive functioning because you make a point in the book, and this is going to take us further down this road. Fret not listeners. We are going to go deeper into how the hell we help our kids (laughs) with all of this nightmarish stuff. You say in the book that often fourth and fifth grade is the time that executive functioning challenges are detected. So I first, I want you to define for folks what executive functioning is. And then I want us to explore whether it's a coincidence or not that around the time that it's the onset of puberty is also the time that their executive functioning issues are getting picked up. So Let's start with define for people what executive functioning is. Perfect. So executive functioning is a term that was almost never used 15 years ago and is used as an umbrella term to mean almost everything today. And that's why it's such a complicated term because <laughs> it's it, it was it was a term without denotation like 20 minutes ago. And now it's just what everyone says whenever there's any kind of issue. So the best way to think about executive functioning is just organization and planning. That is what it means. And you can talk about physical organization, like, you know, the erupting backpack where there's just like an old sandwich next to a new test and, uh, you know, things that you don't want to touch versus things that like you need. So there's the physical, there's the desk and the backpack and the locker, and that's a component to physical organization. And then there's some of what we've begun to delve into a little bit, which is the planning organization in terms of what needs to be done when and how. So organization and planning are the easiest terms to think of when you have executive function in your mind, because that that's executive functioning is amorphous to the point of, of meaningless. I think, in the way that a lot of people use it. That is so refreshing to hear because it does feel like executive function is almost, it's like the sky is blue and everyone has executive function problems, right? It's it's very, feels massive and untouchable. It also feels confusing because we talk on this podcast and there are so many people who are who are having conversations around the prefrontal cortex in the brain, which is the brain's center of executive function. And anyone who has read anything about this is familiar with the concept that brain development proceeds in a very specific order. And the very last part of the brain to mature is the prefrontal cortex, which is the home of executive function. And that doesn't mature, by the way, till you're in your 20s. So- It gets very confusing when there's a concept being tossed around executive function for a fifth grader and there's a concept being tossed around 
maturation of the executive function in the brain that doesn't happen until 15 years later. And how can this little kid or even a bigger kid, a middle schooler or a high schooler, how can they be expected to have executive function ability when that part of their brain isn't fully developed? So I'm wondering if before we get into understanding the the intricacies of it, can you help people understand that difference? Like what can a fifth grader do versus a 25-year-old when it comes to executive function? Yes. And that speaks to um, what Vanessa's question was initially as well, which is, do we think it's coincidental or causal that the executive function issues are coinciding with puberty issues? And you know, I, I haven't done research into this and I haven't read through all of it, but I, I feel like of the research I've, I've read through, it's a combination of factors. The primary factor is probably that in fourth and fifth grade, that's when schools begin to diversify curricula. And as opposed to a single teacher assigning all the work, you have multiple teachers or a single teacher assigning math and reading work in addition to maybe a longer term art project. And I think that that is because in the beginning of puberty, they see students as more mature and more capable of doing this work. So it's this confluence of issues where it's schools seeing this being the time when students are able to take on a variety of work where they need to prioritize what comes first and second and third. At the same time, as students are feeling in their own bodies and selves a degree of lack of confidence and insecurity and uncertainty where they are being asked to decide to triage essentially what is the issue to focus on first and second and third when their mind might be focusing entirely on something non-academic or curricular at all. And I think that that's when you see a lot of issues start to arise. If we have kids, I'm speaking totally if, theoretically yes. here. Not that, we, not that we do, but if, <laughs> if, if we, we did. If we have kids and partners who struggle with executive functioning, not naming anyone in particular, like my husband, what do we need to lead with? I know when we look at kids in puberty and we think about our tweens and teens, we often talk about leading with empathy right? Like trying to understand where they're coming from and kind of put ourselves in their, in their shoes, or at least I like to use the phrase looking under the hood, right? Kind of figuring out. Yes. I'm not sure leading with empathy with respect to executive functioning is the right kind of mindset to lead with. So if you were going to describe a kind of like a mindset or kind of an emotional emotion we want to lead with, with kids struggling with executive functioning, what would you lead with, Brian? I would rephrase a little bit and call it more in terms of the family working together to achieve the goal that the student is assigned. So as opposed to leading with empathy, I think is uh, lovely and we should all live our lives that way. But if one partner or parent or caregiver is leading with a little bit more empathy than the other partner or caregiver, then you end up in a world of answer shopping and people who feel like kids who feel like, well, they know they're going to get, you know, a, a big hug and don't worry about it from one place as opposed to a list of commands from the other. And I feel like we need to avoid that for those of us lucky enough to be co-parenting when, when it comes to these issues. But I think saying like, your teachers are trying to put you in a place where you can achieve these goals, whether that goal is studying for a history test or writing a, uh, you know, a chemistry lab report. And as a parent, I am situated at home to play a comparable role. So it's like, I'm not angry with you for not doing it. You know, I, I am frustrated and I'll try not to show that frustration as much, but like, I'm just the adult here who can help redirect or whom you can lean on or who can create a system at home. So you don't feel so alone in trying to accomplish these tasks. And that's why I feel like buy-in from the beginning is incredibly important. And whether it is a nightly checklist or a back-planned calendar of what needs to be accomplished, that plan shouldn't be given on from high by the parent, but it should be 
a teamwork. And it sounds cheesy because like it's only a rare ninth grader who's going to say like, yeah, mom, like we're all on the same team and we're going to do this together. <laughs> but I do think that there is some legitimacy saying like, I am here to help. Let me suggest three things that might help. I strongly recommend you choose one of these things and let's see if it works. If not, I'm going to check in later, see whether you're able to do it on your own without these things. If not, let's revisit it. And as opposed to like strict rules that kids must follow in my house because I'm paying, you know, for your clothes and food, like saying, here are a few things. They're not all going to be for you, but one or two of them really might be. Okay. So that was exactly where I was going to go with it is I'm furiously writing down a list of things that adults and kids over the years have described as working really well. One of those things is the adults in the home trying different solutions, throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. So you might, in, in a deep, desperate effort to get your kid to write down tasks, you might buy them a planner you might buy them a giant calendar for their desk that they can write assignments on. You know, you try all these tactile things and your your kids, the kids that you are guiding might reject one and then the next and then the next, but it's okay because you may eventually stumble on the thing that works. So long as, you know, the way the adults describe it to me is so long as you give a little preamble, I'm just suggesting this Give it exactly. a try for a couple of weeks, right? So exactly. One... Invite them into your uncertainty and invite them into yes. the process and also model what you are asking them to do. And that's one of the areas oh, where if they see huge. you writing a list, you don't need to say like, look at me, I'm writing a list. But if they grow up seeing that you're writing a list and then you say like, this might work for you, it might not, let's give it a shot. They are a lot more likely to give it a shot than if you say like, you are bad at stuff. This will make you better at it. That's right. And then the two other like little things that I've learned over the years that are gold. One is to have cousins or older siblings, someone who's five, 10 years older, give the advice about what worked for them. Even if it didn't work for them, you kind of plant the seed. But that is gold because your kids are more likely to listen to them and it's more likely to be an authentic response. In other words, like I could go to my niece and say, can you give my kids a couple strategies of how you managed junior year in high school? That advice is worth everything. The other is role-playing because you mentioned earlier talking to the teacher. Teachers want to help their kids. They want to engage their kids. You write a lot about this in your book. It's really intimidating for some kids to talk to the teacher, even though they have a really close dynamic. And so doing a little role play and saying like, let's just pretend I'm the teacher. Help me understand what your worry is. Those two things can make a big difference. I mean, I think that's a perfect example of the role a parent can play in dealing with the homework situation. I, you know, I'm thinking of an example. One of my kids came to me in tears because he just couldn't finish the math, the set of math problems. And he wasn't going to be able to do it and was going to walk into class the next day with unfinished homework. And so I said, okay, you know, you're going to go talk to your teacher. What is that? What can you say? Right. And the first response was, I can't, I'm so embarrassed. Right. And so then I went to the place of, okay, well, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen by you admitting it? And I, he realized that the worst of what could happen wasn't that bad. And once he realized that, I was like, okay, so then let's talk it out. What does that sound like when you approach your teacher? And I think that role play car is really valuable. Now you don't say to your kid, okay, sweetheart, we're going to role play because they're going to turn around and walk out yes. of the room and down the road. You just say, all right, let's figure out how are we going to say this? I think that's great. I think that Brian, your sense of partnership, and maybe you can find a cooler name in your own family for what that sounds like. I often right. will say, hey, I have some thoughts about what could be helpful dealing with this problem. Do you want to hear them? Are you ready to hear some suggestions? And again, that's putting the ball in their court that they're giving me permission or not to offer up some ideas. For some kids, that works better. Other kids just want you to give it to them straight. So it depends on your kid. For sure. And just a, a brief parenthetical, teachers are so hungry to hear from students who are struggling, you know, and, and I think that 
Our long-term goal for all of this should be self-advocacy from the students, you know, so when they don't understand something or if they need some help or if they weren't able to do something to feel comfortable going to teachers. But I see there are students with whom I have a wonderful relationship in classroom where we're joking and learning, but all of a sudden they become a different person if they feel like they've done something wrong and it's they become formal and tense, you know, and the emails are all written with sincerely and apologetically yours, oh. comma, you know, Daisy. Like I, and you just, like you can't touch the kids, but like you just want to give them a hug and say like, it's okay. Like we're all, we're all in this together. So that there is some sense of for younger kids, again, modeling that and saying, I'm going to reach out to your teacher if you don't feel comfortable doing it, or this is something you could say to the teacher, or the teacher isn't rooting against you. There, there is that sense of just, I, I needed to, as a teacher to get that in, because there's the sense out there among many kids and many parents that the teachers will be like angry and disappointed, but I don't know, like we're not, we don't, like it's our job to get the kids to learn stuff. Like anger isn't, shouldn't be, and usually isn't a part of our response. It's more like, okay, how are we going to move forward with this? So before we wrap, I want to ask a massive question. (laughs) Keep it really really, like to a one-line answer. I won't interrupt, I promise. (laughs) And the massive question is, to that end, just describing the email, right? Is tech overall as an educator, is technology friend or foe? Has it helped education more than it has put up barriers? And can you just give just a couple of top line bullet points for parents on how to manage this albatross that they did not grow up with in 30 seconds or less? (laughs) So tech is equal parts friend and foe. As awful as it was having it during the heart of the pandemic, not having it would have been far worse. And a lot of our goals as educators and parents are to figure out ways to wean our children off of it, especially when it became the core element of their academic, social, emotional, psychological life through it. So more or less one way or the other, I have no idea, but I think it was pivotal during the last few years. And now we have to, with intention, decide where it should remain an important part of our children's academic social lives and where it is maybe superfluous and then where it is damaging. Brian, did you write about this for The Atlantic? I'm wondering, we'll link to an article or two by Brian on this topic because I think it is an ongoing challenge for parents and there's a tremendous amount of guilt involved. So we will we will link to that. In terms of strategies for parents who are struggling to keep their kids off technology when they're supposedly, hopefully, possibly doing their homework, you have some really quick and easy tips in the book. So if you can just like list a few out and then prepare yourself emotionally for the practical puberty takeaway. Sounds good. So basic tips, one, disable all technology that isn't necessary for the moment. Whereas a lot of students say like, I need my phone to do this research or I need the computer to write on. That doesn't mean that you need to have the social media apps enabled during that time. Second tip is there is a freedom that comes with a lack of social media access and, you know, group chats that we sometimes don't realize kids experience. So whether it's a, you know, a media shelf or cabinet or something during meals, they will fight you initially, but afterwards you'll see them relax if they aren't tethered to their phone in a way that they don't realize will be the case ahead of time. And finally, doing as much of the work by hand and writing out, you know, whether it's graphic organizers or writing out answers to problems by hand. Uh, Every study, Kara, I'm sure you can back me up on this, says that you retain more information, you become more confident, and you feel as though you have ownership over the material more if it is uh, pen and paper. So those would be literally the feel the neural connection between there's there's there are lots of studies that show there's a neural connection between the first two digits, the pointer finger and the middle finger and the brain. Like it's an unbelievable thing where there's actually and sometimes I'm you know for me I just feel it. That was a deep thought for all of you to ponder. So as you know, Brian, we end all of our episodes with a takeaway and it can be something that summarizes the conversation or something new that you want us to know. Do you want to start? Do you want us to start? No, sure. I'll I'll start. I mean, it, it might be a little bit more general than what you're looking for, but just 
I think that almost all of parenting and education can be seen with providing freedom within structure. And that, that we haven't delved deep into as much as I would like to, where kids prefer structure. This sort of chaos of not knowing what to do is intimidating and terrifying for students. And that starts when, you know, you see a six-year-old in a Taekwondo class being screamed at by an instructor. The kid is thrilled at that moment to know exactly what moves to do and when to do it and responds with joy with that sort of structure. And then it gets more complicated as kids get older. But the idea of like, okay, you have four hours right now to complete this assignment. You might want to complete the assignment as quickly as possible because then you can play video games or watch sports on TV or talk with your friends afterwards. But it really only is four hours. So you own those four hours and with those four hours, do what you want. But it doesn't feel like the giant world. You know, it just feels like something they can control. So I think thinking of assignments and ways to help and ways to frame things for students as these are the boundaries in which you need to work. But within those boundaries, you can make decisions about what you start with, what you end with, how you confront it, what you give yourself breaks, et cetera. There is a, uh, a comfort in that for students that we as grown-ups often don't anticipate. I really like that. And I'm going to add to that, helping them build the skill of prioritizing what they're going to start with and sort of the sense that starting with the easiest thing might be their inclination. And it's counterintuitive to start with the hardest thing, but actually that's probably the best place to start. And I'm, I'm going to implement that in my own house, not by saying, all right, kid, you're going to start with the hardest thing, but saying, hey, I spoke to this great guy and he's a total expert on dealing with homework. And his suggestion was actually that you start with the hardest thing because it alleviates the anxiety. So you're my, you're my prop, Brian, in the conversations tonight. (laughs) Happy to be of use. And I'm going to pull the lens back because I'm the forest person and Vanessa's the tree person and say that what I love about this conversation is the non-binary piece of it, that it, there isn't just one right way. It's not, you know, yes and no, or black and white. So much of this is about scaffolding and framing out and then letting different types of kids and parents and adults who are involved in these kids' lives kind of bang around inside that structure in order to figure out what works for them. And specifically on the concept of tech, I would say that obviously for us as adults who are not native to the tech world, it is very much friend to us. We are Zooming right now. We are relying heavily upon tech to have a conversation about whether or not tech is good. So I always find that irony amazing, right? But it's just a reminder that none of this is binary. But I would say that when we are not native to something that our kids are native to, and we decide we need to set the rules around it, one of the most impactful things we can do is let our kids actually be at the steering wheel. So we want them off tech, go onto their parental controls. They do it. They set the time limit. They turn off their Wi-Fi at such and such a time. They are driving that car. And even though it's us giving a lots of scaffolding and lots of suggestion, they feel ownership and then it becomes more of a partnership and it feels better. And just to add one final thing to that tech conversation, some of what appears to be pure evil in our mind is really just 90% evil. And I think it's important to acknowledge the like the value to something that, you know, horrifies me, like everyone gets together with guns and shoots stranger games, you know, if that is the only way that your kid is communicating with certain friends of his, like there is some value in that. And just ripping it away and yelling at the kid is not going to be beneficial in the long run. It's about understanding, potentially replacing some of that time with other ways of interacting with friends, et cetera. But exactly that false binary that you just uh, referenced, Kara, needs to be mitigated by some sense of these are just like people trying to do what is easy and enjoyable in their lives and taking it away from them without explanation, without conversation is not going to lead to good results. 
It is incredible to hear from you, from wisdom, from someone who lives it both in the classroom and at home. We are so grateful to have your voice on this podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank this you. This was so the most much. enjoyable hour of my last year and a half. Anytime I'd be thrilled to <laughs> we, uh, thrilled to we come aim back. to please, is, Brian. We aim to this please. This was for me, not you. I uh, <laughs> I enjoyed every moment. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at the Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.